This 89.1 WBCX interview is with Jody Sperling, founder and artistic director of Time Lapse Dance and artist in residence at Brown University's Department of Dance, sharing her experiences dancing on the Arctic sea ice. This interview was conducted February 23, 2016, prior to a panel discussion with Sperling and members of Brunel's faculty from various disciplines at the Brunel Downtown Center Theater on the Square. Now, the WBCX interview with Jody Sperling. Welcome to WBCX, Jody. Hi, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, now this big event is coming up Friday. So 1 p.m. at the Downtown Center, uh, the students at the Brunel University's Dance Department are going to be giving a performance of a work that I choreographed. And then we're also going to have a panel discussion as part of that event. And I'll be talking a little bit about my experience dancing in the Arctic. And then there'll be some faculty from Brunel, and we'll get to have a real conversation about how arts and science connect. Well, let me tell you something. I thought at first it was going to be time-lapse photography put to dance in the Arctic. So I went to timelapsedance.com. I looked at the videos, and I looked at this Arctic dance, and it's... Tell everybody how this happened. What I'm doing is I'm moving in a way with the fabric that suggests a kind of time-lapse of ice flows. Um, okay. And what a time-lapse allows you to see is the shape of change. Right. So you can see, you know, a flower grow all of a sudden, which you can't see if you're just looking at it. Right. You'd have to sit there a really long time. Right. But a time lapse lets you see what's really happening. Okay. And it and it lets you see that trajectory from the past into the present and, and let you see what might happen in the future. That movie that I made in the Arctic was partly a way to think about a time lapse. One of the scariest time lapse is happening right now. If you looked at the time lapse of Arctic ice extent, that is a scary time lapse because what you see is a trajectory of shrinkage. With the Arctic, it's complicated. It isn't just essentially fossil ice like what you have in Greenland, which is ice that's some places 100,000 years old that's stored on land and now is basically just crumbling into the ocean and just sliding off huge chunks of it falling into the ocean every day and rising sea level. The other part is that most people don't even realize the Arctic is an ocean mm -hmm. and it's surrounded yeah. by land and that ocean has been frozen and it's been like a skullcap on the top of the earth. And it never was as thick or as old as the ice that you have in Greenland or you have in Antarctica. It's the sea ice, though, is really interesting and dynamic. And it used to be in the regions, you know, where I visited, there was ice that was 30 feet thick. Wow. And I was there in 2014. And, you know, I heard a lecture by one of the ice scientists who was saying, we've lost 80 percent, and that was then, of the volume of Arctic sea ice. The extent hasn't shrunk as much, but the volume has shrunk because it's gotten thinner and thinner and thinner. It's almost like it's being eaten away from below. There's a point at which it's all going to shrivel up. And what the ice has been doing is been acting like a refrigerator for the planet mm -hmm. because all the radiant heat from the sun gets, bounces off the ice and it goes back into the stratosphere. Like 95% of the, the heat from the sun, just when it lands on ice, it just it shoots back up. That's why it's, you know, the glare and that's why it's white. When the ice melts and it reveals open water, it's the reverse. 95% of the radiant heat from the sun gets sucked up by the ocean, and that warms, warms it up. the ocean, which in turn melts the ice more quickly. And so that's, a call, that's called an albedo feedback loop. That's a fancy term. The exact consequences of these changes are global. And so the Arctic weather is changing weather all over the planet. 
and it's changing the direction of the ocean flow. It's changing El Nino. We had a polar vortex. We had a really severe winter last year and really mild one this year. It's creating more volatility to the global climate system, more storms, more severe weather. WBCX listeners may want to go ahead and buy a small boat now. You know, no, it's, just, <laughs> it's just something we have to confront. Stop denying it's a reality. It's happening, and we have to take positive action. Of course, what you're talking about is global warming. And I'd like to ask you this. What do you do when you come across someone who simply does not believe in global warming at all? Look, the Pentagon knows that global warming is happening, and they know why it's happening. Go back to World War II. We had a, something called a Manhattan Project, and mm-hmm. I'm from Manhattan. So, <laughs> so I have a feeling. But anyway, Manhattan Project was the code name for building the atomic bomb. And it, all of the brightest and best scientists went into seclusion to think, to solve, to create this horrible weapon of mass destruction. But the, the brightest minds used the depths of their knowledge and the depths of their experimentation about nuclear physics to come up with this incredible technological innovation. What we haven't had is we haven't had a Manhattan Project for climate. It's not one thing that's a magic cure-all. It's every level of our daily life has to change. One level is just our personal habits that we can control. We can decide to eat less beef, for instance, because Beef is a real contributor to the greenhouse gases. So that's one, you know, just an example of something we could do. We could drive less. That's just on our personal level. But then there's, you know, community level. We could get involved with our church or our local community group. And we could say, okay, as a community, we're going to look for ways that we can be more sustainable. Maybe we're going to do biofuels for our local plant. Or maybe we're going to compost or recycle. Then there's the political or the leadership level. So those are sort of all the different levels at which action is important. Now, technology is going to play a big role in this. There's a lot of technology out there already. It's just not necessarily economically feasible. And so that's something government can do. What often gives me hope is when I think about the incredible changes in technology and in lifestyle that have happened so quickly in one generation and two generation, three generations. When my grandfather was born in 1899, there were no airplanes. He didn't have a car, <laughs> you know, uh, he didn't have a cell phone, he didn't have a phone, he didn't have a telephone and he didn't have a cell phone or an iPad. And I didn't have an iPad until, none of us did until 2011 or 2010, whenever it was. I learned to type on a typewriter. You know, there are all these technologies that we take for granted that have changed our lifestyle drastically and we didn't anticipate them. Human beings can live in every sort of condition. We, you know, there are human beings who are indigenous to the Arctic. There are human beings who are indigenous to the desert. There are human beings who live on islands. We can live in a variety of habitats and function and be happy. And as a culture, we can be adaptable. But what we have to do is be willing to change. And we also have so much built infrastructure. That's the challenge, that we have these high, this highway system and we have cars and we have power plants and so on and so forth. So part of enacting change is dealing with the built infrastructure. Who's going to be a part of the panel Friday, February 26th at the downtown center? We have someone from the biology department. We have another dance person who studies the impact of 
climate on bees, and she actually uses Laban movement analysis to discuss some of the effects. We have Rudy Kiefer from Sustainability at Brunau, and we also have Dr. Andrea Birch, who is the Dean of Fine Arts and Humanities at Brunau. We're talking with Jody Sperling, founder and artistic director of Time Lapse Dance. So let's talk about going to the Arctic and what's going on up there and how you got there and your dance and everything, Jody. Ecosystems are completely entwined. And so uh, when one piece of the puzzle goes away, that has implications in areas that you're not aware of. So, for instance, in the Arctic, the base of the food chain is phytoplankton. And phytoplankton is single-celled plant life that lives in the ocean and also attaches itself to the bottom of the ice. And it needs light to live. And so it used to come just at the peripheral edge of the ice zone. When it would melt, you would have the phytoplankton blooms. And then the krill, tiny little shrimp, come and eat that. And then the fish eat the krill. And the whales eat the krill and so on. And then the seals eat the fish. And then the polar bears eat the seals, you know? <laughs> so so yeah. that's the, the food chain. And also the humans, you know, this area where I was, which is the Chukchi Sea north of Alaska, is one of the world's most productive fisheries. And so we depend on the phytoplankton being there. Well, what's happened, and this is something that the scientists are studying now and they don't really know the full consequences, is because the ice is retreating sooner, because it's thinner, the phytoplankton is blooming at different times Mm -hmm. and different places. And so they don't know if that's going to really drastically impact the entire Arctic food chain. What can people really expect when they go to the downtown center and hear the panel? I think the focus of the conversation, I'm going to start off by just telling my experience of where I went. And I'm a choreographer and I'm a dancer. And I had in mind to do a piece about the Arctic. I have watched a lot of nature documentaries and always been captivated by the formations of ice. And when I had this idea in my head... um, I went to interview some scientists at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and one of them invited me to accompany his science mission to the Chukchi Sea, which is the area north of Alaska. It was an extraordinary opportunity. So I was part of the climate science communication outreach team. And so a portion of his funding is for talking about science. It was not just the science, but also trying to get the word out to the public. And that's one thing that science hasn't always been so good at is telling people what they're doing, because scientific journals are really hard to understand. So I was there with 50 scientists, 80 Coast Guard crew, a 420-foot icebreaker, one of two vessels that the U.S. has dedicated to research in the poles. That's a billion-dollar investment right there. Russia, by the way, is way ahead of us. They have 20 vessels, and they've made a huge stake to the area from their territory to the North Pole. There's going to be some geopolitical conflict in this region, especially as ice retreats. Going back to my experience, there were ice scientists, there were marine biologists, there were oceanographers, and they were studying the interplay between all of these elements in this region. And there was a photographer, a radio documentarian, and a videographer, and a visual artist, and me. And there had never been a choreographer in this role before. Yeah. And so, there, you know, when I first got there, there were some raised eyebrows. Like, What's she going to do? Is she going to dance naked? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but what happened was quickly, everybody became so interested in my project and so supportive 
by the time it left, every time we would do what was called an ice station or we would dock and kind of moor the vessel to ice and then the Coast Guard would go down, make sure the ice was safe and there weren't any polar bears. And then the scientists would go down and drill the holes. And then I would go down and, and basically set up a tripod and camera and dance. Yeah. <laughs> I got to do this 12 times in the course of a 43-day mission, which was remarkable. And I had really the support of all of the scientists and all the crew to the point where the, the last day, I remember the captain being like, a dry erase board, like, okay, this is where these people are going to be. And this is where these people, they're putting me on the map. They're saying, this is the dance area. And the captain's saying, yeah, I think right there is a good way. And the chief navigator is filming me, you know, from the bridge. So, like that big aerial shot that you got, that was shot by the... Really? By, uh, yeah, Master Chief Sullivan. So, (laughs) it was an extraordinary collaboration. Took a lot of people to help me out and for me to, you know, basically practice all these different times that I was out there and to gather the footage. We're talking with Jody Sperling, artist in residence at Brunel University's Department of Dance, who shot a small movie, Dancing on the Arctic Sea Ice. Jody, tell everybody what your website is so they can see this. Yeah, so my website is timelapsedance.com, and we talked about the time lapse. And if you click on videos, I have the video of ice flow up there, and you can see me dancing on the polar ice cap. How long were you dancing? When I first went out, you know, it was, you know, it was May. It was like 12, 14 degrees. And I'm in a unitard <laughs> and a little bit of silk. I would go down there, bundle up, throw my coat off, go in front of the camera and then dance for five or 10 minutes and then throw my coat back on, look at the footage and then like go back yeah. and I'd be out there maybe a total of half an hour, 45 minutes. But I felt I developed a tolerance for the cold and also I developed ways of kind of staying warm in between shots. So by the end, I would be out for a couple hours. Yeah. yeah. The science team would be out there for four hours, and I would wait until they were set up to go out. Throughout the mission, it got warmer. So when I first was on the ice, it was in the teens, and by, when, by the time I left, it was, you know, balmy 29, 30 degrees, so... Yeah. (laughs) Makes a difference. (laughs) Now, let's talk in the video. People are going to see you dancing and you're you're holding things. I use expansive costuming in my work. And the costumes are inspired by a style of dancing that originated over 100 years ago. And it was a style of Louis Fuller. And she was a pioneer of modern dance. And she used garments of literally hundreds of yards of silk in her costumes. And she would illuminate them with fantastic multimedia projections and new electric lights of different colors. So Loewe Fuller was an inspiration of mine. And I started 17, 18 years ago experimenting with her genre, developing dances in this style. It's what I call time-lapse dance technique. Yeah. So we use this Loewe Fuller style costuming, which basically extends the body into space. And then we can create dynamic sculptural forms. When I'm teaching the technique to the students here at Bernau, sometimes we work just with the body. And then sometimes we work with what I call the apparatus. If you're a dancer, and even if you're not a dancer, when you move through space, you create a ripple. You displace air. And if you could see it, there'd be a wake behind you when you're walking down the street and sort of swirls and eddies all around you that you can't see, but those are real. The fabric enables the viewer to see the air around you and the impact of the body in the environment. When I talk to the students, what we try to do as dancers and artists is you try to shape 
your impact on the space around you. And you try to sculpt that air and use your mind and your body and your attention to make beautiful sculptural dynamic forms. There's a corollary when you talk about as a dancer, you want to impact the space and your environment. And you understand that even just by breathing or walking that you're creating a ripple effect in the area. So as human beings, we have to understand that just by breathing, just by exhaling carbon and intaking oxygen, just by our being alive, we heat up the area around us. We have an impact just being here and that we have to be part of the solution to shape our impact in space and not just be unconscious of what our impact is. You've been an artist in residence here at Brunel University and have been here since, I believe, the 14th and enjoyed it? Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've been able to really connect with the students and talk with them individually and go to visit a bunch of different classes, teach the modern dance class, and also work with them on developing choreography. So it's been a really fascinating and wonderful experience. Well, Jody, it's going to be a great meeting at the Brunel Downtown Center, Friday the 26th, 1 o'clock in the theater on the, on the square in the Brunel Downtown Center. And I'll just like to leave saying this. I just wish that you were passionate about your feelings on this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know I'm kidding. To you. No, I am. It's, it's yeah. very impressive to listen to you. All right. Thank you, Jody Sperling, for coming by WBCX. It's a lot of fun. You're very welcome. A pleasure to be here. The panel discussion at the Brunel Downtown Center Theater on the Square is Friday, February 26th at 1 p.m. Presented by the Brunel University Department of Dance, and it's free and open to the public. To learn more about Jody Sperling, log on to www.timelapsedance.com.